Hello and welcome to the Royal Institution Science Podcast. In this episode, Richard Dawkins talks to Alice Roberts about some of the most memorable moments from his professional and personal life. I thought to myself, when did I first become aware of Richard Dawkins? It's one of those really difficult questions because it's almost as long as I can remember, but I, I, I know when it was. It was at school when a biology teacher recommended that I read The Selfish Gene and I was utterly blown away by it. And I was gripped by Richard's ability to communicate the complexity in biology. And after that, I graduated onto the blind watchmaker and followed the debate between Richard and Stephen Jay Gould, punctuated equilibrium versus gradualism. It was like a presidential race, and I'm still not sure he won. And then there was the extended phenotype, river out of Eden, climbing Mount Improbable, unweaving the rainbow, the ancestor's tale, and of course, the God delusion. And that's not even all of the books. But in his most recent books, in An Appetite for Wonder and now in Brief Candle, Richard Dawkins has turned his interrogative gaze on himself. So what led to the evolution of this peculiar breed of evolutionary biologist? You open Richard's book and you find him in the Hall of New College Oxford on his 70th birthday, being slightly surprised at being there, I think. And Richard, you say, I'm there as a subjective 25-year-old. And I read that and thought, really? Is that, uh, is that how you feel? Well, that's a bit high. Maybe 18 would be near, nearer than that. <laughs> but it is such a, it's such a wonderful passage, so um, I would quite like you to read um, that opening. What am I doing here in New College Hall, about to read my poem to a hundred dinner guests? How did I get here? A subjective 25-year-old, objectively bewildered to find himself celebrating his 70th orbit of the sun. Looking around the long, candle-lit table with its polished silver and sparkling wine glasses, reflecting flashes of wit and sparkling sentences, I indulge my mind in a series of quick-firing flashbacks back to childhood in colonial Africa amid big, lazy butterflies, the peppery taste of nasturtium leaves stolen from the lost Lilongwe garden, the taste of mango more than sweet, spiced by a whiff of turpentine and sulphur, boarding school in the pine-scented Vumba mountains of Zimbabwe, and then back home in England beneath the heavenward spires of Salisbury and Arundel, undergraduate days, damsel-dreaming among Oxford's punts and spires, and the dawning of an interest in science and the deep philosophical questions which only science can answer. Early forays into research and teaching at Oxford and Berkeley, the return to Oxford as an eager young lecturer, more research, mostly collaborating with my first wife, Marion, whom I can see at the table here in New College, and then my first book, The Selfish Gene. Those swift memories take me to the age of 35, halfway to today's landmark birthday. They milestone the years covered by my first book of memoirs, An Appetite for Wonder. Unlike An Appetite for Wonder, this second volume of my autobiography is not simply chronological, not even a single flashback from my 70th birthday. Rather, it is a series of flashbacks divided into themes punctuated by digression and anecdote. Since we're dispensing with rigid chronology, the order of themes is somewhat arbitrary. I said in the first volume that, insofar as anything was the making of me, Oxford was. So why not start with my return to those glowing limestone walls? 
That's just wonderful. And if you haven't read Appetite for Wonder, then, then please do, because that fills in the gap. And then obviously you're going to read Brief Candle after that. So in Oxford, you um, and, and remaining at the beginning of the book, which starts off in a vaguely chronological way yeah. before it explores themes, um, you, you describe in, in 1989 how a particular burden, a black spot, fell on you, and you became, um, you became the warden. No, sub-warden. Um, sub-warden, um, yeah. sorry. Um, sorry, the, sorry. Wa the warden of New College is the head of the college, and right. it's, quite, it's, an, it's an honour to be the warden. You actually have to get elected, and, and mm. you know, it's, it's quite a thing. Um, sub-warden is not like that. Sub-warden is, is Buggins' turn. You just inexorably, <laughs> um, the black spot travels down the, the order of seniority, and I could see it coming and dreading it. Um, you have to attend all committees, you have to take the minutes, you have to make speeches at dinners, and you have to welcome new fellows and say goodbye to old fellows, and you have to make a speech at the Gordian, that's the sort of alumni dinner. And fortunately, the good thing is it only lasts for one year. But you enjoyed writing the minutes. I enjoyed writing the minutes. I like slipping little jokes in for the, for <laughs> for the amusement of those of my colleagues who bothered to read them, which wasn't necessarily all of them. And you, um, you had to say grace as well. Um. Yes, that's part of the duty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I like, the, um, I, like, I like the end of that paragraph there, which, right, which I think okay. probably sums up how you feel about saying grace as well. As sub-warden, I had to preside over dinner in hall and say grace before Benedictus Benedicat and after Benedicto Benedicata. One of my predecessors as sub-warden, the ancient historian Geoffrey de St. Croix, used to refuse to say grace on conscientious grounds. He described himself as an atheist politely militant. <laughs> Equally conscientiously, however, he went out of his way to line somebody up to say it for him. Once when I was a dinner guest at King's, our sister college at Cambridge, whose chapel, incidentally, is one of the most beautiful buildings in England, the senior fellow presiding was the incomparable Sidney Brenner, one of the founding fathers of molecular genetics and winner of a well-deserved, they aren't always, Nobel Prize. Sidney gaveled everybody to stand, then solemnly intoned to his neighbor, Dr. So-and-so, will you please say grace? I, however, was of the school of thought of the great philosopher Sir Alfred Eyre, who, when sub-warden of New College, cheerfully said grace on the grounds that I will not out of falsehoods, but I have no objection to making meaningless statements. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've also, as well as uh, making um, a career out of uh, science writing, you've also um, embarked on a television career as well. And you've done several television programmes where um, you apply the force of reason to um, various areas. And um, Enemies of Reason was um, a prime example of that. And I, I just, yeah, this is, this is absolutely wonderful. Um, this is how you tackle um, oh, yes. people who come up to you and say that they can hold two wires yes, okay. and that they're going to cross yes. over and yes. that they'll be able to tell if there's a glass of yes. water there. Yes, and okay. it's, they're not doing it. The wires do it themselves. Enemies of Reason contained a telling sequence on dowsing coordinated by the London University psychologist, Dr. Chris French, Professional and amateur water diviners converged from far and wide to show their prowess, confident in their ability, proved to their own satisfaction over years. Alas, they had never before been subjected 
to a double-blind trial. Inside a big tent, Chris French laid out a rectangular array of buckets. Some of the buckets contained water, some contained sand. In the preliminary trial, the lids were removed from the buckets, and the dowsers all had no difficulty. Their divining rods, hazel twigs, or pieces of bent wire all obediently twitched when they could see water, and didn't when they couldn't. But then came the real test, with lids on the buckets. Because it was a double-blind trial, neither the dowser nor Dr. French, who was keeping score, knew which buckets contained water. The accomplice who set them up did so <coughs> with the tent sealed, and he then disappeared so that he couldn't give the game away by any subtle cues. Under these double-blind conditions, not a single one of the dowsers scored above chance level. They were flabbergasted, desperately, in one case tearfully, disappointed, and obviously sincere. Such failure had never happened to them before, but they had never done a double-blind trial before. I don't know who invented the double-blind trial, but it is a brilliantly effective yet simple technique. There's a telling story in John Diamond's courageous book, Snake Oil, written when he was dying of cancer and beset by well-meaning quacks. The skeptical investigator Ray Hyman once did a double-blind trial of an alternative diagnostic technique called kinesiology. As it happens, I've experienced kinesiology myself. I'd ricked my neck and was in pain. It was the weekend and I couldn't go to my normal doctor, so I decided to be open-minded and try an alternative practitioner. Before beginning her manipulation, she did a diagnostic test which consisted of pushing against my arm to test my strength while I was lying on my back, kinesiology. She demonstrated to her own satisfaction that my arm was stronger when I had a small vial of vitamin C resting on my chest. The vial was sealed, there was no way for the vitamin to enter my body. So it was obvious that she was really, though probably subconsciously, pressing harder against my arm when the vial was not there than when it was. When I expressed my skepticism, she gushed her enthusiasm. Yes, C is a marvellous vitamin, isn't it? Self-deception of that kind is precisely what the double-blind technique was invented to eliminate. In testing the efficacy of any medicine, not only must it be compared with the placebo control, it is vitally important that neither the patient, nor the experimenter, nor the nurse administering the doses should know which is experimental, which control. Ray Hyman did a double-blind trial of a slightly less far-fetched claim of kinesiology than used by my quack, that a drop of fructose placed on the tongue would strengthen a patient's arm when compared with a drop of glucose. Under double-blind conditions, there was no difference in strength. Whereat, the chief kinesiologist delivered himself of this immortally indignant remark. You see? That's why we never do double-blind testing anymore. <laughs> it never works! <laughs> Moving on to... Um uh, another wonderful story, and uh, and looking at looking for the humanity in science, I think, which which does come out in your books, and I think that obviously that was the whole subject of unweaving the rainbow that 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 understanding the world around us doesn't lessen the wonder, and if anything, it increases the wonder. And certainly, that's been my experience of science. But then there are some areas of science which I think seem very cold 
um, and unforgiving and austere and, and difficult to approach. And you need the right people to help you make those connections and to make them human again. And there's this absolutely wonderful story about Carolyn Porco. Oh, yes. Uh, Carolyn Porco came to visit us in Oxford and has been friends with Lala and me ever since. She is a planetary scientist in charge of NASA's Cassini imaging team, the team that has brought us those stunning pictures sent back from Saturn and its many moons. But she's more than just a good scientist. She's inspired by the poetry of science, especially the romance of the spheres that share our sun. She's the nearest approach I know to a female Carl Sagan, a poet of the planets and singer of the stars. Whether or not the heroine of the book Contact was actually modelled on her, it is a fact that Carl Sagan invited her to be the character consultant on the film version. The scene where Ellie first hears the unmistakable communication from far space still gives me goosebumps when I think of it. The slender, clever young woman, woken up by the mind-shattering signal, bouncing back to base in her open car, exultantly yelling the celestial coordinates into the intercom for her dozing assistance. Numbers, numbers, the spine-tingling poetry of those numbers and their arc-second precision. And how poetically right that the hero of the numbers should have been a woman, a role model just like Carolyn. An anecdote displays the poetry of Carolyn, and I related it in the Oxford Playhouse when introducing her Simone lecture. That was a series of lectures that I organized in honor of uh, the benefactor of my professorship, Charles Simone. A beloved professor from her days at Caltech was the geologist Eugene Shoemaker, co-discoverer with his wife and David Levy of the famous Shoemaker-Levy comet. A pioneer of astrogeology, Shoemaker was part of the Apollo space program. He was in the running to be the first geologist on the moon, but to his sad regret, had to drop out for health reasons, and he turned to training, and he turned to training astronauts instead of being one. In 1997, Shoemaker was killed in a car crash in Australia. Carolyn, in her grief, raced into action. She knew that NASA was about to launch an unmanned craft which was programmed to crash land on the moon after its mission was accomplished. She managed to persuade the mission manager, as well as the head of the planetary exploration program at NASA, to add her teacher's ashes to the spacecraft's payload. Gene Shoemaker's ambition to be an astronaut was denied him in life, but his ashes now lie on the moon's surface where no wind stirs them. It is said that Neil Armstrong's footprints are almost certainly still intact. And she added a photographic engraving bearing these words chosen from Romeo and Juliet. And when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. And he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. Um, it's absolutely beautiful, and I think, and I think, really does um, speak to the humanity in, in in science and in scientists. Of course, we are normal people. Um, so we do need to talk. We do need to talk about religion. Yes, obviously. Okay. Um, so um, obviously, you um, your 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 major onslaught. If I'm 
call it that, um, was in the God delusion. Um, and here you are in this book defending uh, the, the right to poke fun. And, and I think it is defensible because you poke fun at yourself, you poke fun at science, you know, the, uh, your, your, your jokes are throughout and they're aimed at absolutely everybody. Um, but here is an excerpt which is about the, the inability to poke fun at religion, which I rather like. Here's an example of the kind of thing in The God Delusion to which I suspect critics take exception as savage or strident, aggressive or offensive, but which I see as good-natured satire, a touch of the stiletto perhaps, but miles away from the bludgeon or from vulgar abuse. After pointing out that Roman Catholicism, though avowedly monotheistic, has leanings towards polytheism, with the Virgin Mary a goddess in all but name, and the saints attracting personal supplications as demigods, each in his own specialist field of expertise. I continued, Pope John Paul II created more saints than all his predecessors of the past several centuries put together, and he had a special affinity with the Virgin Mary. His polytheistic hankerings were dramatically demonstrated in 1981 when he suffered an assassination attempt in Rome and attributed his survival to intervention by Our Lady of Fatima. A maternal hand guided the bullet. One cannot help wondering why she didn't guide it to miss him altogether. Others might think the team of surgeons who operated on him for six hours deserved at least a share of the credit, but perhaps their hands too were maternally guided. The relevant point is that it wasn't just Our Lady who, in the Pope's opinion, guided the bullet, but specifically Our Lady of Fatima. Presumably Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Medjugorje, Our Lady of Akita, Our Lady of Zaitun, Our Lady of Garabandal, and Our Lady of Nock were busy on other errands at the time. <laughs> Wounding sarcasm, perhaps, but strident? I don't think so, and certainly not symptomatic of Tourette's syndrome, as one critic has accused me of. I think it's legitimate satire, and would like to think quite funny, but it gave grave offence not only to Catholics, but even to the rightly admired Melvin Bragg, a non-religious cultural commentator and enabler who is well on his way to national treasurehood. Such censure arises only, I suspect, because we've taken on board a convention that religion is off-limits to criticism. Yes, I think it's right. Um, and you, you also, um, at another point in the book, talk about theology and talk about um, the unassailable um, facts within, within theology, so the, the sort of assumptions that it's, yes. it's based on. Um, I mean, I... I've been a bit negative about theology, but I, I do think that professors of theology who do things like um, analyzing um, in a scholarly way biblical texts or looking at biblical history, uh, comparative religion, that kind of thing, that's a very worthwhile exercise and, and, and should be done. What I don't think is a legitimate academic exercise is things like puzzling over the theology of the transubstantiation and the Trinity and things like that, which all are based upon an, an assumption which we, we have no reason to, to, to make. And so I've, I've been a bit sarcastic about, about theology for that reason. 
So there are aspects of it which include, I suppose, literary and historical study. Yes, that you think are, which I are think well are, founded. Are, are, yes, and and properly belong in a university. But but arguing about whether the the the, the wafer really does turn into the body of Christ or only symbolically, um, that's not a proper academic subject, I don't think. So these kinds of theological gymnastics that you, you you discuss in the book, and you also. Um, Imagine what would happen if we if we used a similar approach to science. Science, yes. Um, theological gymnastics over the significance for us today of nonsensical ideas from the past, like transubstantiation, lend themselves to satire, positively beg for it. A gem that I recently met. Of course we don't literally believe the story of Jonah and the whale, but it is symbolic of Jesus' death and resurrection. Suppose science worked like that. Suppose that, to take a most unlikely hypothetical, future scientists were to find that Watson and Crick were completely wrong and the genetic molecule is not a double helix at all. Ah, well, of course, nowadays we no longer literally believe in the double helix. But what is the significance of the double helix for us today? The way the two helices twine intimately around one another, though not literally true in the crude materialistic sense, nevertheless symbolizes mutual love, don't you feel? <laughs> the precise one-to-one -one pairing of purines with pyrimidine is not literally true, nothing so crude as that, but it stands for... When you contemplate the Watson-Crick model, don't you get an overwhelming feeling? I know I do. <laughs> Is it's so easy to satirise, <laughs> and yet it is so prevalent in our society. We, we talked a little bit about faith schools um, just well, as we were yes, about I mean, to come I, in. I, I do think it, that um, religious education belongs in schools, provided it's education about religion, not education in a particular religion, telling the child that she belongs to this religion and therefore believes so and so. But it, it is important that children should learn about religion because religion is so important in history uh, and um, the different denominations are so important in European history. Um, different religions are so important in history. Uh, and, and literature too. I mean, you can't take your allusions to English poetry, English literature, unless you know, know the Bible. But your but Jonah and the whale story reminded me of... Um, well, my daughter goes to a CV school and yes. she went to a service two weeks ago, last week in fact, uh, where the vicar, the theme of the service was saints and superheroes. And the whole point of this, it turned out, was that superheroes aren't real. <laughs> Probably leave it there. <laughs> I think um, you do... Uh, in the book, at many points, um, bring out the, the sort of life-affirming nature of uh, a scientific worldview, um, and, and that sometimes your, um, your your critics see you as being extremely negative and antagonistic about religion, um, and and actually counter to that is this um, very positive view of a, a of a scientific approach to the world and the the value and the meaning that we can find through that sort of approach, that you see it as a life-affirming one rather than a life-impoverishing one, um, and a, a source of wonder rather than an enemy of that. So, um, I think we'll probably finish with, with this passage, Richard. 
By the way, we share that, of course. I mean, you, you mm. and I share that, mm. that um, sense of science as poetry and um, the idea that um, it is an absolutely amazing privilege to be able to be born into this world and then grow up and be educated to understand where we came from, what we are, what we're made of, what makes us work, um, where, the, where the world comes from. This is such a beautiful thing to, to experience. And we are so privileged living in the 21st century. We're so privileged to live after Darwin, to live after Einstein, to live after Newton, um, and to, have, to be part of a civilization that has escaped from, from the sort of early benighted ignorance. Um, okay, this final paragraph, um, which is, yes, as, as, as you describe, if, if there are passages of the God delusion which can be read by the sensitive as strongly critical, if not actually strident, the book both ends and begins gently. The last section, entitled The Mother of All Burkas, is an extended metaphor. The life-impoverishing slit in the burqa stands for the narrowness of a pre-scientific worldview, and I go on to illustrate various ways in which the slit can be widened with consequent enhancement of life and its joys. Science widens it, for example, by showing what a tiny fraction of the electromagnetic spectrum is visible to our senses. The beginning of the book is a generous reminiscence about a chaplain at my old school who, as a boy, was lying with his face in the grass and was inspired by a moment of revelation to embrace the religion which was to become his life's path. Suddenly, the microforest of the turf seemed to swell and become one with the universe and with the rapt mind of the boy contemplating it. I respected his epiphany enough to say that, in another time and place, that boy could have been me under the stars, dazzled by Orion, Cassiopeia, and Ursa Major, tearful with the unheard music of the Milky Way, heady with the night scents of Frangipani and trumpet flowers in an African garden. The reference to Ursa Major was consciously prompted by the memory of a poem written by my mother as a girl, which concluded with the following lines. The great bear stands upon his head, his paws among the apple boughs, that dark against a darker sky wave in the wind and tap their twigs with little sounds forlorn and sad within the night's dark emptiness. My opening page ended with a warmly indulgent reminiscence of how we used to distract our chaplain in divinity lessons by asking him to recall his wartime service in the RAF. And I quoted, in his honour, John Betjeman's gently affectionate poem, Our Padre. Our Padre is an old sky pilot. Severely now they've clipped his wings, but still the flagstaff in the rectory garden points to higher things. After my book was published, I was delighted when an old boy of the same school sent a little poem into my website, richarddawkins.net. I knew your flying chaplain, as my housemaster, I order. While you embraced his liberal views, I just embraced his daughter. <laughs> Whatever the faults of a British private school education, Andal must have something going for it if it produces alumni who can turn out that sort of thing. <laughs>
Well, Richard, I think you've, um, you've taken us full circle. Uh, we've heard about the African garden again, and uh, we've come back to that idea um, of inspiration. Uh, your book begins in New College, Oxford, and ends in New College, Oxford, with, with your 70th birthday celebrations there. And um, we're closing another circle here tonight because we're also remembering your Christmas lectures back oh, in 1991. Mm -hmm. um, and so it falls to me to thank you very much uh, for uh, the readings this evening uh, and, and bearing with the readings that I've chosen for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you all for coming. Thank you. We do have some time for questions, and there are roving microphones available, I think. Yes, here they, here they come. Um, so, um, yes, stick your hands up and a roving microphone will appear. This gentleman... Yes, okay, sir. so British universities seem to be carrying themselves safe places these days, where one is expected not to evince any opinion that might upset anyone on campus. Um, a, what do you think about it? And B, do you feel there's anything we can usefully do to expose young people to ideas they don't have already? What on earth is a university for other than to be challenged and to be made to think and made to argue and, if necessary, made to face up to things that you find distasteful? Um, I am actually appalled by this tendency to infantilism that is infecting not just our universities, but those in America as well, uh, a rash of cases where people have been invited by student societies to go and speak and have then been disinvited mm. at the behest of the student union on the grounds that what they say might upset some of the students or offend some of the students. Well, if you're offended or upset, tough. That's what you come to university for. May I quote Stephen Fry? <laughs> Stephen Fry said, you're offended, well, so fucking what? <laughs> um, and say the, the next question, please. Is this on? Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say your tie is absolutely gorgeous. Um, oh. And um, my question was, do you think that epigenetic inheritance could give rise to what we could call a form of Lamarckian evolution? Here's where Alice and I are going to have a mutual tutorial, because I'm going to learn from her. <laughs> um, I, for, as far as I can, am aware, epigenetics is all about embryology. Um, the embryo starts as a single fertilized egg, a, sing a single cell, and as it develops, the different cell types differentiate, and, that's, and so liver cells are different from kidney cells, different from muscle cells, different from bone cells, etc., because different genes are turned on in these different tissues, and that's epigenetics. Now, lately, the word epigenetics has come to be used for a particular example of genes being turned on and then the turning on being in some mysterious way inherited by the next generation. That may happen, and that's why you've asked the question, because that looks like uh, a kind of Lamarckism. Um, 
it's unfortunate that the word epigenetics has been usurped for that particular kind of inheritance. Um, but given that it has, uh, what do you want to know if it was to become the basis for a form of Lamarckian inheritance is, does it go on for many generations or does it die away? And as far as I know, it dies away, if not in the next generation, in the next but one generation, if it happens at all. Uh, so it, that, that rules it out as, as a vehicle for evolution in the same way as mutation is a vehicle for, uh, for evolution. Um, it also, no, I, th I think I prob I've probably said enough. It, 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 it might be interesting, the phenomena might be there, but if they are, we've got a very long way to go before we use this as an example of possible uh, Lamarckian uh, evolution. As far as I can tell, it, it is not that. And I think the word is being misused anyway. I think it's a, it adds another layer of complexity, which is, which is very interesting. Um, it, what we're basically talking about is not changes to the genetic code itself, but changes to the proteins that attach to it. And in fact, not even changes to the proteins, but you know, subtle modifications to them, um, which will then affect actually how the, pro, how the yeah. DNA exactly is Exactly, as is happens exposed. in embryology anyway. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The, you know, the whole key to, to making, a, making a body with lots of different cells, you know, having nerve cells and liver cells and pancreatic cells and all of those sort of things, every single one of your cells has the same DNA. How do you do that then? Why aren't they all the same? Why aren't they all just clones of each other doing exactly the same thing? You have to be able to turn particular genes on and off. Um, and, and this is what epigenetics is. So it's modification of those histone proteins, which when I was at medical school, I did, we, did, we didn't learn this. It was, it, it was out there in the published literature. But as far as I was concerned, histones were just packaging. Um, and so it's got a lot more interesting. Um, and, and, and obviously it's out there and people, people know about it out in the public domain as well. So it, that, it, that is the major ramifications of epigenetics that you know, we're now understanding how uh, you, you get differentiation in the embryo of all, of all these different cells. There does seem to be an effect which spans generations. There are some studies, some longitudinal studies in humans which suggest it. Um, it hasn't been proven in humans yet. We don't know whether... Um, the process by which the gametes are made, the eggs and the sperm, actually involves stripping all of those epigenetic modifications so that you start from scratch. Um, and that may be the case. It may be that in some simpler animals, you, the, the modifications stick around for maybe a few generations, but that in humans they don't. We, we still don't really know, but there is the possibility for them to slight, just slightly change the game a little bit, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that... You, the, the fundamental process is still going to be natural selection. What, where's the next? Oh, there's a, there's a gentleman there, and you just pass the microphone to him. One of the uh, very best things I've seen on YouTube is the hilarious love letters to Richard Dawkins. Oh, it's just brilliant. Fa fabulous, <laughs> and, and the way the cameraman cracks up is, is, is wonderful. Um, I was just going to ask if you are thinking of uh, filming another instalment soon. First of all, so, Richard, can you explain what they are? Yes. Um, uh, I, a few years ago, I, I filmed... Uh, I, some, somebody filmed me reading the hate mail that I get. Um, <coughs> and uh, we hammed it up a bit. Um, I, I think I was probably dressed in a dressing gown and, and with my feet in slippers before a log fire. Um, I don't think I was smoking a pipe. In fact, I know I wasn't. <laughs> but you get... I think I had a cat on my lap. It was, it was that sort of thing. And... and reading out these extraordinarily obscene, vitriolic 
um, you know, I hope you get painful cancer and die a painful death. I hope you, uh, hope you get run over by a church van. Um, and then, by popular request, I did, I did another lot, um, uh, but about three years later. And my original plan for that was suggested to me by a young woman who was a, a student of making films, and she had a plan to film me doing it, this time not by a fire, but this time with a beautiful young woman cellist uh, playing beautiful sweet music um, while, while I um, read the, these, these awful, um, awful hate mail. Um, that, that, unfortunately, that never got edited, and so the, the, the second one was in fact done in front of a a fish tank with the, with the fish yeah. swimming peacefully, <laughs> peacefully around. Um, the, there's been another one that I received quite recently which didn't get into either of those two performances, which I really rather like. It's, I hope you lose your watch and are late for an important appointment. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, another question from somewhere over here. There's a... There's a lady right at the back there. I'm going to make you run, Martin. Right up to the back. The lady in the orange orange top. It looks orange from here. Apologies if it's not. Um, so maybe a question of science fiction or evolutionary biology, I'm not sure. But do you ever speculate about what adaptation might come next for humans and what that might look like? Or do you not enter into that? Well, if we're talking about um, uh, biological evolution in the future of humans... Um, remember that this can only come about through differential reproduction. Some types of humans would have to be uh, either survive better or be more likely to reproduce than others. So if you think about the kind of thing it might be, if you think about, say, um, what's happened in the past two million years or three million years, one of the m more dramatic things that's happened to us over that period is that our brains have got bigger, dramatically bigger much, much bigger. Um, and so you might well think, well, is that going to continue? Will we in the future have brains like the Mekon with, with you know, huge... Um, uh, and to repeat, in order for that to happen, it would be necessary that consistently over a large number of generations, over perhaps a million years, the brainiest individuals have the most children. <laughs> Which must, in some sense, have been true over the past three million years, because otherwise our brains wouldn't have got bigger. They've got slightly smaller since the Paleolithic, though. Have they? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Another new. We're on a downward trend yes. now, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so I often get asked this question, and I refuse to answer it, but I say I'll make some predictions about what won't happen. Because oh, okay. there yeah. are, we have our bodies are really tightly constrained. Our development is really tightly constrained, and there are some things which happen very early on during embryological development that, if you were to flip them or change them, you would just derail the whole of the process, and there's absolutely no way it would work. So I will make a um, prediction that humans are never going to grow another pair of arms. Um, that humans are never going to grow extra fingers. I don't think that's going to happen. 
Um, you're never going to have eyes in the back of your head. All of these things yeah, that's which would be really good. difficult, actually, to, to work out biologically how to do that without derailing development. That's very interesting, and, and it's a point we often forget. When we're, when we're thinking about adaptation, we think only about what it's good for, sort of out there in the world, and forget that every single change has to come about by a change in embryology. And there may well be things which embryology just doesn't allow. It's too difficult mm. to do. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, gentleman in the middle of this block over here. Hi. Um, have you paid any attention to physicist Lee Smolin's comments on the evolution of the laws of physics? Yes. Um, this is an interesting idea. Um, the, um, quite a lot of physicists favour, for reasons of quantum theory, the idea of a multiverse, the idea that the universe that we know, the universe in which we find ourselves, is not the only one, that there, are, there is a population of universes. Um, and it's, uh, part of the idea is that these different universes in the multiverse have different laws of physics. And uh, there may even be billions of them. And the great majority of them have laws of physics which uh, are not compatible with, for example, us. The anthropic principle states, we have to be in the kind of universe which is capable of giving rise to us. So there's a kind of, already there, you can see a kind of Darwinism going on. Um, the fact that we are here and aware of our existence automatically selects for the fact that we have to be in the kind of universe that can give rise to us, which has physical laws which are capable of giving rise to galaxies and stars and chemistry and so on. Now, Smolin has taken that idea a bit further and made it more strongly Darwinian by suggesting that it is not just a vast population of universes, a, a small minority of which are compatible with us, but by suggesting that there's a kind of biological reproduction of universes. Universes give birth, in Smolin's view, to baby universes, to daughter universes, in black holes. Um, so um, it's possible to say of a universe, this is its parent, and that's its grandparent, and that's its great-grandparent. You can have a descent, a pedigree, of universes. And as in biology, each generation, there's the opportunity for a mutation to occur. In this case, a mutation in the laws of physics. And so a daughter universe has almost the same laws of physics as its mother, but not quite. So there we have the idea of a kind of genetics of universes, a, a, a heredity of laws of physics and constants of physics. Darwinism comes into it now because since... Black holes are the birth event for a universe. Some universes, because of their laws of physics, are better at giving birth, better at making black holes that give birth than others. And so universes evolve to become better at giving birth to baby universes. And coincidentally, the characteristics which make a universe good at giving birth to baby universes also happen to be the same characteristics that give rise to galaxies and stars and chemistry and, and, uh, and, and, and life. So that the multiverse has evolved to become more and more likely 
to give birth to the kind of universe that can give birth to us. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's my biologist's account of the Smolin theory. I hope I've done, done it justice. So there is selection there? On his view, yes. There's yeah. a, there, there is a kind of selection. It's mm. not selection for life. It's, it's selection for those properties of physics, those, the, the laws and constants of physics, which incidentally produce life as a byproduct. So it's kind of reproducibility, but it's, not, it's still not strictly Darwinian if there's not any selection beyond... Oh, no, it is, it is Darwinian, because there, because there is selection to become better at making baby universes, which, okay. is, which is like biological selection. Mm. I don't think, actually, many physicists buy it, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have another question. There's another one up in the, in the gallery up there. It's a, I think a gentleman. I'm very sorry if you're not a gentleman. Hello. Um, Hello. I hope you are. Professor Dawkins, um, I had a conversation with my father-in-law, who is very religious, and he claimed he'd seen you uh, on YouTube. I know it's social media and everything. Um, saying that if you were provided with uh, empirical evidence for the existence of God, you would still not believe it. And I'd, I'd said, no, I don't think he said that. So I, I said, I'm going to see him soon, so... Well... I'll <laughs> So I'm really glad I got the opportunity well, to actually, ask no, you. This is, I think this is a very interesting and difficult question. Um, for years, I, I've said, of course, if I'm provided with empirical evidence, I would believe instantly. And the kind of thing I had in mind was um, the, the clouds pass, part asunder and a great chariot appears and a, a deep, booming sort of Paul Robeson voice says, I exist. And, and I would, of course, instantly be, be converted. But um, your father-in-law is, is right that I have hesitated a bit about that because um, how do I know I'm not dreaming? How do I know I haven't gone insane? Um, <laughs> how do I know I'm, I'm not the, the victim of a, 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 of a conjuring trick by some very clever alien uh, pen and teller? Um, <laughs> or Darren Brown. Um, and I, I now am, am actually verging on departing from scientific orthodoxy and saying, I, I can't, it's, I find it very hard to imagine anything that would actually convince me, not just about God, but of anything supernatural. Because what is supernatural? What, what would you even mean by supernatural other than something that we don't yet understand with existing Science, no, and not even that we don't understand, but that we're unable to detect, presumably. Well, um, I, I mean, I think if 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 some if if some miracle were performed, and and one were asked to say, uh, because of this miracle, I now believe in the supernatural. Um, have, have you seen Darren Brown doing a trick? Have you seen Penn and Teller? Have you seen the amazing Randy? I mean, these these what these people do is supernatural, except that we know it isn't. Um, because we know they are, they are professional conjurers. Um, but uh, it, it's, I find it very hard to convince myself that it's, that it's not supernatural. It's only the fact that they, that they tell me and that I'm, I sort of um, understand that, how clever conjurers are. Um, you know Hume's criterion for, for miracle. You should only accept a, a, a miracle if it would be even more of a, of a miracle. Um, 
that it, it, would, it should prove to be a fake, a hoax, a trick, a hallucination, or something like that? Isn't it always going to be a more plausible explanation that it's a hoax, a fake, a, a mistake, um, a trick, a hallucination, than that the laws of physics have been broken? And, and um, seeing how clever conjurers are, um, I, that, I, that shakes my confidence in my ability to say, okay, now I'm convinced, I believe it. I, 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 I'm kind of backtracking from that scientific orthodoxy. It sounds like a challenge to me. It sounds like you're throwing down the gauntlet, actually, Richard, to yes, all these countries of. out there yeah, to try and um, um, convert you. Yes. Yeah. I'd like to thank very much the Royal Institution um, for hosting us here tonight in this wonderful lecture theatre that Richard is so familiar with. And I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight. And last but not least, thank you very much, Richard Dawkins. Join us in two weeks' time for Sean Carroll's talk on how ecosystems are regulated and the remarkable comeback of national parks like the Serengeti and Mozambique's Gorongosa. <laughs>